The broadcast is now starting. All attendees are in listen-only mode. Hello, everyone. Welcome to CPA Academy. This is Jason Bookman. I will be your moderator for today's webinar titled, Is That Worker an Employee? Questions and Answers on Worker Classification. And we have Michael DeBliss, who's going to be presenting for all of you over the next 90 minutes. But before we get into the webinar, I want to go through some quick technical checks, a little bit of housekeeping, make sure everything is working for everyone. But first, if you haven't already done so, and I see a lot of people have, let's go over to the GoToWebinar control panel docked on the right side of your screen. Pop out the questions panel and let me know that you can hear my voice. Let me know that you can see the title card of the slides. And while you're in there, let me know where you're listening in from, what you're hoping to get out of today's webinar. So far, I see people checking in from all over the country. I see lots of people in South Carolina. I see Massachusetts. I see Philadelphia, Arizona. Welcome, everybody. So glad you're all spending part of your day with us. Of course, if you can't, if anybody can't hear or see the slides throughout the webinar, please let me know in this questions panel. I'll do the best I can do to get my troubleshooting done quickly and put your focus back where it needs to be, which is on our session. And now for a little bit of quick housekeeping regarding credit. Today's webinar qualifies for one and a half CPE and one CE credit hour. In order to earn those credits, you have to be logged in for at least se uh, 75 minutes out of the 90 minutes of our allotted time and answer the poll questions. There will be six polls throughout our time logged in. When the poll comes up, these slides will go away, and the big blue go to webinar poll box will come up on your screen. All you need to do is click on the little radio button that best corresponds with your poll answer and hit the submit button. We're going to use those polls in your time logged in to issue CPE credit, which will be done by the end of the day today. Oh, somebody said please announce the polls. Polls will always be announced. We're going to issue CPE by the end of the day today. CE, we will register at a later date with the IRS, the enrolled agents on the line. But regardless of the kind of credit you are here to earn, we are going to send you an archived copy of today's webinar for your future reference, as well as a copy of the handouts for you to download. And the handouts are available for you to download right now in the handout section of the GoToWebinar control panel, as well as in the My Account section of CPA Academy. We actually updated the handouts earlier today, so if you downloaded the handouts before, the, before this session, we would advise you to re-download the handouts now, either in the My Account section of CPA Academy or in the handout section of GoToWebinar. Again, I'd like to advise all the enrolled agents on the line who are here for their CE credit, please make sure you have your PTIN input correctly in your CPA Academy account. And now that we've gotten through all of the housekeeping, it is my pleasure to step aside and turn today's presentation over to Michael DeBliss. So Michael, take it away. Thank you very much, Jason. It's a pleasure to be back with all of you again for uh, another presentation. Um, it is, uh, it's always a joy to be able to share uh, whatever knowledge I can with um, a group of professionals like yourselves. Um, I always welcome questions. Um, if I don't get to the questions during the course of the presentation, uh, feel free to post them on the page or to uh, shoot me an email. This uh, topic on worker um, classification is a topic that is near and dear to my heart. Um, when I uh, first put out my shingle and I started practicing um, as a solo practitioner, um, these were some of the first cases that I got. 
And um, I was thrown into this area um, basically blind and uh, had to do a lot of research and uh, to get up to speed on it. Uh, so it is a um, an area that's in my tool house and that um, I uh, and that I enjoy practicing. So again, I'm happy to be here today to share uh, whatever knowledge I can on this topic with all of you. So let's jump right in. Um, this is a little bit about me. Uh, my background is as a trial lawyer. Um, I am uh, also an actor uh, working professionally these days. Um, I'm I'm uh, very proud to announce um, after having graduated conservatory. And uh, these are some of the other uh, hobbies that I enjoy. I love to write. Um, you can find any one of a number of my tax blogs on my website. And uh, I do run marathons and looking forward to uh, perhaps even running the New York City Marathon one day. Um, so <clears throat> this is how we back our way into this topic. Uh, the cost of paying human capital is among the largest burdens for most businesses. Uh, for good companies that value quality employees, it's a solid investment. Um, after all, strong workers can make or break a business. For the, their less scrupulous peers, however, paying for employees can be viewed as a, um, as a necessary evil or as an obnoxious pain that simply stands in the way of more necessary spending. So this disdain for covering employee costs has over time developed into a startling and unfortunate statistic, and that is employee misclassification. Now, and a W-2 employee costs a company quite a bit of money. Um, as many of you are aware, the employer has an absolute obligation to uh, withhold uh, what are known as uh, federal taxes. They have FICA and FUDA um, are two of the most commonly uh, withheld uh, taxes. And um, that costs the company money. Um, so the employer has to contribute its share and the employee, the W-2 employee, has a share that it has to uh, pay over as well. However, for the employer, um, it is very, as I, as I mentioned before, I think I used the term, um, it's, uh, it's obnoxious because in the sense that it creates a lot of work and a lot of bookkeeping on their end because they act as a withholding agent. And um, the salary that they pay to the employer um, isn't isn't the straight salary that um, you know that the employer that the employee would um, would get if they were an independent contractor. Instead, the uh, employer has to withhold a certain percentage. And so, this idea of having a W two employee costs a company quite a lot. In many jurisdictions, there are requirements related to benefits and paid vacation time, and employers are required to pay a portion of the employee tax obligations, uh, the two of which we just discussed before being the uh, FUDA and the FICA. An independent contractor, on the other hand, doesn't come with um, any of these costs uh, or uh, perhaps to be a little bit more crass, um, any of this baggage. Uh, benefits aren't required. Vacation time is rarely provided, and the employee pays all of his own taxes. Win-win, right? Well, not all the time. 
employee classification isn't just a whim left up to the employer. It's based on federal laws that cover aspects of a work environment like scheduling and control over assignments. So what this speaks to is how it isn't, necess it isn't necessarily the um, up to the employer um, to decide whether um, the, the whether their workers are classified as the as a W two employee or as an independent contractor. Now, of course, they they can uh, express their preference, and if their preference is to treat the worker as a uh, independent contractor, then they have to scrupulously follow the factors that would uh, classify the worker as such. Um, however, they the worker cannot the employer rather cannot arbitrarily say my workers are independent contractors if they don't meet the test that we're going to soon talk about. Uh, so just because the employer might say and say so emphatically that my workers are independent contractors doesn't make them so if they don't fit within the scope of the requirements for the independent contractor. And so it's kind of like putting a square peg in a round hole um, because that's what happens a lot of times. Uh, the uh, employers believe that because they've um, memorialized a contract with their workers that specifically states in the contract that the worker is to be treated as an independent contractor, that for all intents and purposes, they are just that. But um, even though, but uh, the duck test is what prevails. If it looks like a duck, it walks like a duck and quacks like a duck, then it's a duck. So even if the employment contract states otherwise, if, it, if the relationship between the employer and the worker uh, looks more like that of a worker-employee relationship, then the IRS is going to treat it like that, um, regardless of the fact that the contract agreement states otherwise. So we're going to delve into all of that. This is just kind of a preview to give you some background of what's to come. <clears throat> Despite, and here, sure. Before we get going, is it okay if we launch our first poll question? Absolutely. All right. Want to make sure we get all of the polls in for all of you to earn credit. So poll question number one is live on your screen right now. We are going to leave the poll question open for about a minute or so while we collect your responses. Everybody go ahead and answer the poll at your quickest convenience. And as soon as we are ready, we will close the poll down and return to the slides. This is poll question number one. There will be five more poll questions following this one. We're going to leave this open just a little bit longer. I will give you all about 10 or 15 seconds to get your answers in. All right, we're going to go ahead and close this poll down in five, four, three, two, and one. All right, Michael, back to you. Okay. <clears throat> so that's very interesting. Um, I'm um, I'm actually uh, very impressed to see that 51% of those on this conference have had experience dealing with this topic. Um, it just goes to show that it is a topic that is uh, very um, common and that does come up frequently. 
So uh, hopefully I can uh, provide you with some, um, you know, additional information on it. And um, uh, as I said, any questions, feel free to uh, shoot them off to me. Uh, here are some statistics. Um, despite all of what we've discussed, many employers continue to misclassify employees for personal gain. Um, a study done in 2000, and I apologize I don't have one that's more up to date. Um, I'm going to try to uh, find one that is actually more recent. But a 2000 study found that 10% to 30% of employers have misclassified workers. Uh, that same study found that 95% of workers who believed they were misclassified were indeed um, uh, were indeed misclassified. Uh, uh, so that goes to show you that this is an issue that is on the IRS's radar screen and that um, is going to uh, constantly be uh, looked at with a magnifying glass. Um, additional examinations have indicated that current rates of misclassification may be even higher than previously suspected. In Ohio, misclassifications increased by over 50% from 2008 to 2009, while in Illinois, they reported an increase of 21% from 2001 to 2005. These statistics paint a dire picture, uh, but as I said earlier, the government is adamant that they're cracking down on this alarming trend. In 2011, the Department of Labor collected over 5 million um, in back wages for 7,800 employees. Now, what it comes down to is this. Um, if a worker thinks that they may be misclassified, or if you as a tax professional have a client that is misclassified, uh, what we're going to talk about now is what you need to know and what you can do about it. So as I, um, you know, as I am alluding to here, there's two ways to view this. Um, that is <clears throat> uh, representing the client that may um, believe that they are misclassified. And then on the other side of the house, representing the employer who comes to you and who asks you to um, draft an agreement or to ensure that the workers are treated in uh, one fashion. And it's usually that of an independent contractor, although there are employers who want their um, uh, workers to be treated as employees. So you could be called upon to do any, any um, of one, uh, any, um, any one of two things. And that is uh, be the advocate for the client who is a worker of a, a company that, um, you know, where they believe that they've been misclassified, or you can be um, asked to assist the employer or the company that is in helping to ensure that the worker is classified in the way that the uh, company wants them to be classified as. Uh, so here's the importance of proper classification. Income tax, Social Security, FICA, and FUTA are among the irrefutable realities of paying employees or earning wages, all W-2 employees are required to have these amounts withheld from their paychecks. But the same is not true for independent contractors. So as you can see here, we have a lengthy laundry list of um, irrefutable re realities uh, that come along with um, earning wages and uh, that have to be withheld for W-2 employees. And again, this is not true for independent contractors. 
While this amount varies from state to state, this can result in 20% or more of the employee's paycheck in withholdings every payday. Now, um, to make this discussion complete, I want to talk about the trust fund taxes because you hear me, you've heard me talk now about withholding. Um, the Internal Revenue Code requires payors to withhold for taxes amounts paid to certain individuals. Um, so what we're talking about here is that um, the payor is the employer in a situation where um, the worker is an employee. And uh, the reason why is because, as we indicated here, the employer is in a position where they have to withhold income tax, Social Security, FICA, and FUDA from their employees. And the way that happens is by withholding this uh, whopping 20% uh, or more of the employee's paycheck from the paycheck. And in doing so, uh, when the employer withholds that amount, the employer is entrusted uh, to hold that money back, and then to pay it over to the government, um, typically in quarterly intervals. Uh, so the most commonly encountered example is where an employer must withhold from the employee's wages, the employee's federal income taxes, and the employee's share of the FICA taxes. The withheld taxes are referred to as trust fund taxes. And the theory here is that the employer has paid those amounts to the employee so that the employer is no longer entitled to the amounts. And by retaining the amounts or uh, holding them, the employer holds them in trust for the government. Now, the reason I put that phrase in italics is because that is, uh, that is incredibly significant in terms of the relationship that it puts the employer at with the government. The employer is um, basically a trustee uh, for the government, and that puts him, uh, that in, uh, injects him with what's known in under the law as a fiduciary duty. Um, so this is not just a, a arbitrary uh, relationship now that the employer has with the government where they can pick and choose when to turn over this um, trust fund, these trust fund taxes, the employer has an absolute duty to turn this amount over to the government, to collect it and to turn it over. And that's where problems arise um, because as I'm foreshadowing right now, a lot of times um, the employer doesn't have the money to pay um, for their uh, merchandise, doesn't have money to pay for, uh, you know, for other things that keep the business afloat. And one of the things that they'll do is that they'll delve into the cookie jar, so to speak, of the trust fund taxes and use that money to pay for expenses that keep the business afloat as opposed to turning that money over to the government. And that's where the problem arises in this area of trust fund taxes. Um, the bottom line is that this relationship of um, of uh, of of the that the employer has with the government is a very very um, uh, sacrosanct relationship, and the fiduciary duty that it creates um, prevents the employer from 
from using this money for any other purpose other than to pay the government its taxes. So again, the employer holds these uh, trust fund taxes and trust for the government until they're paid over to the government to apply to be applied to the employee's tax accounts. Now, a question that comes up frequently is what happens if the uh, employer defaults and doesn't pay that amount over? Does it still, does the employee who's had this amount withheld by their employer still have an absolute obligation to the government to pay the taxes if the employer uh, doesn't pay it over? The answer is no. Um, because the employer has withheld the amount from the employee's paycheck, the employee has no obligation to pay it over to the government, um, but the employer um, can suffer the repercussions of that in any one of a number of ways. Um, so even though the funds are designated trust funds, there's no requirement that after withholding and prior to remitting to the government that the funds actually be held in some type of segregated trust fund or account. And this is part of why this gets to be a little bit messy and part of why uh, some employers um, you know, uh, use this money for other purposes than to uh, pay it over to the government. Uh, prior to be, turning, to be turned over to the government, the employer holds the funds and um, oftentimes uses them for other purposes, although the person or persons directing their use for purposes other than payment of the trust fund tax can be liable for this trust fund recovery penalty or even a collateral criminal penalty. That's why um, you know, it's just it's going down a slippery slope and one that no employer wants to go down um, to use these uh, trust fund um, to use this this these withholdings for any purpose other than to pay the government because uh, the penalties associated with this and the potential for a criminal um, investigation is just uh, too uh, risky. The government must credit the employee with the amount withheld, even if the employer does not remit the withheld amounts to the IRS. And the following is um, a good example of the court's view of the trust fund tax and the employer's responsibility. Um, I'm not going to go into this, but uh, you can read it at your leisure. Um, the significant responsibility is summed up by uh, Judge Cardozo, a famous judge's um, statement that a trustee is held to something stricter than the morals of the marketplace, not honestly alone, but the punctilio of an honor the most sensitive is then the standard of behavior. So you can see here that the courts take this very serious, this idea of the employer being a withholding agent and the fiduciary duty that's created by the employer withholding these taxes and having an absolute obligation to pay it over to the government. Uh, here's an example. Employer owes employee $500 for wages and based upon the withholding requirements must withhold uh, $50 for the employee's income taxes. And this is just a fictitious example. So um, I'm sorry, uh, you know, because these numbers aren't realistic, but um, I just want to uh, simplify it to make the point. Um, in this example, the employer owes the employee $500 and must withhold $50 for the employee's income taxes based on the employee's W-4 and related withholding tables, $37.50 for the employee's share of FICA. Employer writes a check to employee for $412.50. Uh, what that really comes down to is $500, uh, $500 in wages minus uh, the $50 of 
the employee's income taxes and minus 37.50 for the employee's share of FICA. And that's how we come up with 412.50. Employer is deemed to have withheld the 87.50 from the payment and is required to turn that amount over to the IRS. It doesn't matter whether or not the employer in fact withheld. Indeed, the employer may have only had $412.50 to pay the employee and that's only paid. Nevertheless, the employer is deemed to have withheld the 87.50. The employer is liable for that 87.50. Failure to pay it over to the IRS subjects the employer um, or persons uh, working on behalf of the employer, such as the payroll agent, um, that makes them responsible for failing to do so um, and puts them on the hook for what's called the trust fund recovery penalty. When the employer fails to pay the trust fund taxes, it will usually also fail to, to pay the employer's related taxes, specifically the employer's uh, portion of FICA. However, the employer's portion is not a trust fund tax. In other words, it's not another person's liability which is satisfied through withholding. So the employer's obligation um, is, not, um, is not a part of the trust fund tax. Uh, what we're talking about here is when the employer fails to pay uh, over that portion that it withheld from the employee's uh, paycheck. In this example, even if the withheld taxes are not paid, the employee is credited against his income tax and credit for payments into the Social Security system for FICA. Essentially, the employer is a withholding agent for the government. Um, not surprisingly, given the amount of dollars in the system for trust fund taxes, the IRS has a significant interest in encouraging compliance with requirements and has invested a um, significant amount of resources and uh, personnel in um, auditing and examining companies um, for uh, worker classification and to ensure that um, the employers are withholding money um, and turning it over in a um, you know in due course. Um, as I said here, there's major compliance functions in place to deal with potentially delinquent withholders. Now, there are penalties to put teeth in this. Section 6672 imposes civil liability upon certain persons other than the employer for unpaid trust fund taxes. That could be a payroll agent. It could be uh, the accountant in the company. Um, it could be any one of a number of people who are um, in any way related to cutting that check to the employers um, every other week or every month, depending on how frequently the workers get paid. Uh, the code refers to the liability as a penalty, but it is merely a tool to enforce collection of the trust fund taxes. Although the liability is related to the underlying trust fund taxes, it is still a liability separate and apart from them. Um, this liability is frequently referred to as the trust fund recovery penalty. Uh, the circumstances get, that give rise to the penalty, and we've discussed these already, um, just to summarize, the employer is late in turning over the trust fund taxes to the IRS and then is unable to pay them. Um, another reason is that the business falls on hard times and is experiencing cash flow problems. The principal person or persons managing the business may attempt to keep the business afloat by using the trust fund taxes to satisfy what um, they believe to be a far more urgent need. Uh, little do they know, however, that um, what they believe to be a far more urgent need um, isn't necessarily 
um, one when it comes to uh, the IRS knocking at their door and um, and demanding uh, payment of these late um, uh, taxes. Um, in in many cases, it the uh, uh, the IRS coming um, and demanding payment of these uh, federal taxes can literally cause the company to go bankrupt and uh, bring a company down to its knees. So while the business might think that it has more pressing financial concerns to take care of uh, with respect to cash flow problems and that um, the government can wait until they get back on their feet, uh, the opposite is usually uh, the case. The expectation is that the cash flow problem will disappear and that the trust fund tax will be paid later. But um, in truth, that's more um, a, uh, a myth and uh, it's more wishful thinking than anything else. Hey, Michael. Yes. Before we get to the next section, do you mind if we run another poll question? No, absolutely not. All right. I'm going to go ahead and launch poll question number two right now. That should be available on everybody's screen at the moment. We're going to leave this open long enough, as always, to get a majority of responses in. This is poll question number two out of six. There will be four more polls following this one. So everybody go ahead and get your answers in. We're going to close this poll down in about 20 seconds or so. so everybody go ahead and get your answers in. All right, we're going to go ahead and close this poll down in three, two, and one. All right, Michael, back to you. Thanks, Jason. Um, so there's more here on the trust fund recovery penalty. Um, I'm not going to delve any deeper into this, but um, you can uh, review the remaining slides at your leisure. Um, returning now to the importance of proper classification, um, in 2011, the Department of the Treasury estimated that every employee misclassified as an independent contractor saves a company, company nearly 4000 in employment taxes and $43,007 in salaries and wages. Um, so you can tell that um, there is uh, definitely a motive, um, you know, on the part of the um, employer to um, misclassify, um, you know, and that's because of the enormous savings that it affords uh, the company. And that's why this is on the IRS's radar screen. Uh, this trend has likely only risen after the Affordable Care Act was phased in, as employers meeting specific regulations are required to provide insurance for their employee. This only adds to the expenses accrued to keep people on the payroll. Employers benefit when misclassifying, but the opposite is true for employees. Um, in addition to an increased tax burden, um, the uh, independent contractors also lose the benefits associated with employment. And what do I mean by loss of benefits associated with employment? Well, there's some that are quite obvious. Um, others aren't um, as obvious, but um, the ones that the lost benefits associated with um, being an independent contractor 
are um, when in fact the worker um, is pro should properly be classified as an employee is unemployment insurance, workers' compensation for injuries, minimum wage and overtime protection, uh, coverage under FMLA, that's the Family Medical and Leave Act, and the safeguards of employment equality laws like Age Discrimination and Employment Act and the Civil Rights Act. So you can see here that um, you know the benefits of being an employee are um, quite significant, and that's why a lot of um, whistleblowers in this area tend to be workers who feel that they have been um, misproperly classified. Um, and I'll tell you what, it doesn't often happen where a worker just randomly or arbitrarily goes to his accountant and says to the accountant, I think I'm being misclassified um, as an independent contractor for this company when in fact I should be an employee. What typically happens is a worker is um, injured on, um, you know, um, at work and then attempts to make a claim for um, workers' compensation for injuries. And the employer turns around and says, hey, no, you're an independent contractor. You're not an employee. You are not entitled to any workers' compensation under our employment agreement. And that's usually what um, triggers these uh, investigations where the IRS now comes in and um, and now you have multiple parties because you have the uh, worker who has gone to not only his attorney, um, you know, and, um, you know, claiming that he's been injured and that he wants workers' compensation. But now when the attorney representing the soon-to-be plaintiff digs deeper and through uh, discovery uh, and through depositions finds that the employer is um, alleging that the worker was an independent contractor, then the lawyer usually uh, escalates the matter to the IRS if um, they're not getting anywhere with the employer and the employer's attorney. And, um, you know, the plaintiff, the soon-to-be plaintiff, essentially becomes a whistleblower saying, hey, um, I, I worked as if I was an employee and I was under the impression all along I was an employee. You know, I had to uh, show up at 8.30 a.m. to the very same workplace um, five days a week. I, um, you know, I, uh, I didn't have the ability to work for any other uh, company outside of this company. Um, I had special books then training um, that specified how the employer wanted the job done. And so the more of these that get ticked off or checked off, the more the relationship looks like that of, a, of an employer-employee. And then uh, usually the employer takes out a contract that has independent contractor written in virtually every line of the contract. And the employer, by virtue of that, believes that he has um, he has uh, created a um, employer-independent contractor relationship, but again, that's not the test. Uh, even though the agreement may say uh, may say that the uh, IRS will look at all the factors to determine whether this um, relationship looked more like a worker or an employer-employee relationship, and uh, the duck test is what prevails. <clears throat> Law-abiding businesses are hurt by the negligence of others as well. 
Uh, one study found that misclassifying employees can increase the cost of unemployment taxes and workers' compensation premiums based on the adjustment of participants in the general pool. Part of the costs associated with employee benefits may shift to the general public, too. For example, underpaid contractors not eligible for insurance at work may opt instead for public assistance. And while seemingly insignificant, businesses that save money through illegal classifications gain a competitive advantage as well. So for all these reasons, um, this is why the, uh, this has become a major issue and a major compliance function of the IRS. So employees versus contractors. Under the law, there are four available employment classifications. Uh, we've been talking exclusively about uh, two right now, but um, in essence, there are four. The first is independent contractor. The second is common law employee. The third is statutory employee. And the fourth is statutory non-employee. And I'm going to talk a little bit about each one. And let's uh, first talk about the contrast between employees and contractors. Uh, while there are similarities and differences in all of these categories, the major difference separating employees from contractors is the element of control. So if you've ever had to do some research into this area, uh, you're going to see that uh, seven-letter word come up time and time again. An employer has the ability to dictate the work to be done, who should be doing it, how it is to be done, and what the end result should be. Uh, so a couple of the examples that I gave before um, are prevalent here. Uh, for example, training. Um, if the employer has um, you know, monthly training events for the workers where they uh, discuss how they want the work to be done and they provide the tools necessary for that work to be done, um, they are essentially um, controlling and dictating how the work should be done by virtue of uh, having these regular uh, training sessions and by virtue of uh, distributing the tools necessary for the workers to do the job. That could be in the form of laptops, uh, perhaps. It could be in the form of software uh, for inputting hours. Um, it could be any one of a number of uh, things that dictate how the employer wants the work to be done um, and how it should be done. Um, if the training is specifically geared to how the worker wants the work to be done in the sense that, um, you know, they want, um, you know, they have a special script for um, their, uh, their, uh, uh, the, uh, the operators that receive incoming calls for orders, um, and they want that script to be used at all times when customers call the company, um, and then they have, um, you know, steps by which uh, the operators are to uh, try to increase, um, you know, um, the purchase by add-ons and things of that nature. All of that, you know, tends to show that the employer is uh, micromanaging, so to speak, the employer, but is specifically dictating how the work is to be done. And uh, that would be more suggestive of a employer-employee relationship. That element of control is significant, um, but at the same time, it's not the be-all, end-all, but it is one of the most salient uh, factors in this relationship.
So this means that if an employer tells you that you personally must prepare a sales report using the data included in your sales reporting systems to be completed fully and accurately by the end of the workday, it's completely his right to do that. Um, however, he should know that this is, you know, essentially uh, satisfying the element of control for purposes of establishing a employer-employee relationship. As long as this direction or element of control is present, an employee-employer relationship exists, even if one or both parties wish to classify this relationship as something else. And that's what oftentimes happens. Uh, you have the employer who thinks that they've established a worker-independent contractor relationship when, you know, under the duck test, it looks uh, diametrically opposite of that based on the element of control and the amount of control that the employer is exerting. So at the end of the day, you know, the worker or the employer can't have his cake and eat it too. Um, if he wants it to be done this way um, by dictating how the sales report is prepared and, you know, what's got to be included in it and how, when it's going to be due, again, that's completely his right, but he should understand that what he has created in essence is a uh, employer-employee relationship as opposed to the employer-independent contractor relationship. A contract or other signed agreement does not have the power to supersede the law. This is what's known as a substance over form doctrine. And um, I'll digress just briefly to discuss that doctrine if you're unfamiliar with it. Uh, this doctrine maintains that the substance rather than the form of a transaction is what governs the tax consequences of a transaction. It's kind of like the duck test that we talked about. Um, the IRS will always look to how are things being done um, practically speaking in the business. How, is, how are everyday business operations uh, going on? And that is what governs or um, that is what um, you know, basically prevails and um, governs the day. So generally, the effect of applying the doctrine is to produce a tax result that differs from the tax result that its form would otherwise demand. The substance over form doctrine came out of a um, little-known case, um, but it was a Supreme Court case nonetheless in 1935 called Gregory versus Halvering. Uh, it'll come right up, I think, on uh, fine law if you Google it. In that case, the court held that as a general rule, the incident of taxation depends on the substance rather than the form of the transaction. Since that uh, case, various courts have disallowed a tax benefit associated with a transaction that has a form that differs from its substance. And so an exam the example here would be that the form... Um, that is uh, being proffered is that of a employer-employee relationship, uh, but it differs from the substance, the substance being what is going on in, uh, in real life, so to speak, uh, with the general operations of the company. Historically, the government has relied on this doctrine to target schemes where taxpayers have intentionally mischaracterized a transaction in order to derive a beneficial tax treatment. Uh, should the shoe be on the other foot and the worker himself be given the right to direct and control the work to be done, the hours during work, which work can be completed, and who physically performs the work, these aspects 
look a lot more like an independent contractor relationship. And so we have now factors that um, the courts look at and that the IRS will look at before we even get to a courtroom to determine whether under this um, uh, under this fictitious duck test, it looks more like an independent contractor relationship. And uh, here's what has to be established. So uh, right now, it's very key that you um, you know that you focus in on this because you're you're inevitably going to have a client that comes to you, and that client is uh, uh, potentially an employer and says to you. Uh, directly that they want their workers to be treated as independent contractors. So this is the shoe on the other foot that I'm talking about here. What are you going to say to that um, potential client and that um, employer uh, to help guide them to that result so that they don't have a fiasco um, you know, or a brouhaha with the IRS you know, a year, maybe five, maybe 10 years later when the IRS comes knocking and challenges their classification of worker. Here is just a few uh, of the things that you might tell that employer. Um, you need to give your workers the right to direct and control the work to be done. You need to give them the right to uh, determine what hours they work. And you need to give them the right to um, you know, uh, determine when the work can be completed, all within reason, of course. I mean, naturally, you know, independent contractors still have deadlines, but you know, the more, um, the more, the more strict the deadline is, and the uh, more, um, you know, the penalty potentially is for missing that deadline, the more it's going to look as if the element of control is there and present. Uh, who physically performs the work? Um, you know, these are all elements that are more indicative of an independent contractor role. And we will go through uh, all of the factors that the IRS um, and the courts have created for determining, um, you know, employer-employee relationships versus employer-independent uh, contractor relationships. So with this boils down to is that an employer can offer a project to a contractor so long as the terms under which the project is completed are controlled primarily by the contractor. So what you can see here is a power shift where the power has kind of gone back to the contractor and there's almost as if there's a change in status. And that's what I what I tend to look at as as an actor, we get into talking about status all the time. And um, if you were to distill this um, control element into its essential terms, it really comes down to one of status. Um, and I oftentimes think of the contractor, or I think of the worker in one setting when um, he is an employee as one that has low status because the employer is dictating um, virtually everything to the employee. And then on the other hand, I think of the worker as having a heightened status when it's a relationship of one of employer independent contractor because now the contractor has the ability to um, determine 
you know, how the project and how the work is to be completed. They get to kind of, they have the independence and the autonomy to, um, you know, to, to uh, come up with the terms themselves, all within reason, of course. But, you know, nonetheless, they uh, usurp more control than the employee has in the employer-employee relationship. In order to make this boundary a hey, little- Michael? Yes. Just wanted to jump in. Uh, is it okay if we run another poll question quickly? Sure. All right. We're going to go ahead and launch poll question number three. We will have three more polling questions following this one in the remaining 40 minutes of our time. So we're going to go ahead and leave this open for a little bit longer. Again, this is poll question number three. There will be three more poll questions following this one. And leave this open for about another 20 seconds. I'll give you all a second while you answer this poll question, and then I will close it down. All right, I'm going to go ahead and close this poll down in three, two, and one. Okay, Michael, back to you. Thank you. So what we have here is uh, 20 factors that we're going to review. And uh, these, are, these factors are weighed in terms of their importance and applicability. Uh, they can be used to help businesses and workers understand where they stand. Um, so these uh, factors are very, very important. No one factor is dispositive, meaning that no one factor carries the day. But I will tell you, um, <laughs> we have this expression. Um, so we have we have uh, three co-equal branches of government, um, that being, of course, the judiciary, the uh, Congress and uh, or the legislature and the executive branch. But <clears throat> in the case of Marbury versus Madison, um, the Supreme Court lifted itself above all of the other branches by saying um, in so many words that we are the first among equals. Um, and so I use that example only to uh, illustrate to you that uh, while no factor that we discuss here is dispositive and will carry the day, um, I will tell you that the control element is so heavily relied upon that um, the more it looks as if the employer is exerting control, the more it looks as if you've got an employer-employee relationship. Um, so just keep that in the back of your mind. Uh, but again, um, you know, it's more or less a, a balancing test. If the answer to most or all of these questions is yes, uh, the worker is going to uh, look more like an employee. If most or all of these questions can be answered with no, the employee can likely be classified as an, as an independent contractor. Uh, here are the main points. Uh, is the worker required to follow instructions regarding where, when, and how he is supposed to work? Is the worker provided with training prior to beginning work, like meetings, seminars, or other correspondence? Are the services offered by a worker integral to business operations and ongoing business success? Must any services be personally provided? 
Are any assistants hired, supervised, and paid? Is there an ongoing relationship between the hiring body and the worker? Does a service consumer set duty or work hours? Is a time committed by the worker performing services roughly equivalent to full-time hours? Is work performed on the premises of the service consumer? While plenty of workers do perform work at third-party sites and still be considered employees, off-site work often suggests greater freedom. The applicability of this point will largely depend on the work being performed. Must services or jobs be performed in a set order or sequence? Or are uh, oral or written progress reports required in the course of performing tasks? Is a worker being paid on an hourly, weekly, or monthly basis versus a lump sum or commission payment? Are business travel expenses covered by the service consumer? Is a worker provided with significant tools and resources to complete work, like a computer or a mobile phone? I want to stop here for a moment because I actually have a personal story that I would like to share with you. Um, I, uh, When I uh, graduated college, um, I didn't go right off to law school. I actually spent a little bit of time in corporate America working uh, for working um, as an independent contractor, believe it or not, in the tech industry. Um, I was working for a company called Volt, uh, which is still in existence today. And this is oftentimes how big uh, Fortune 500 companies structure relationships with their workers to um, uh, to uh, to validate uh, their status as independent contractors. They hire third-party companies like Volt, which um, is essentially a um, you know a company that finds work for individuals um, in different segments of industry. And I had applied uh, for a position uh, with Volt, and Volt had essentially subcontracted me out to Verizon. And Verizon had a project that uh, was going on for a lengthy period of time. Um, it was to be about a two-year project where it, it, it necessitated auditing. And um, it was there were regulatory bodies involved, but in some in substance, it was a job um, that where we were kind of the watchdog, so to speak, um, as the auditors to ensure that the quality of service that Verizon was affording its competitors was um, comparable to the service that it was offering its own customers. And the reason for that was because Verizon wanted, Verizon had incentive to do this because they were looking to get into the long distance um, uh, industry in various states and they had to prove to the Board of Public Utilities that the service that they were providing their uh, CLEX, uh, which is short for their competitive local exchange carriers, matched the same service that they were providing to their, uh, to their own customers. And so a, a little more background, and I'm sorry, I don't want to bore you, but the uh, infrastructure that Verizon maintained uh, was basically leased to third-party carriers, uh, which back then uh, could have been any one of a number of different CLECs. I, off the top of my head, I can't remember, um, you know, uh, even one right now. But um, they would piggyback off of Verizon's landlines because it was too expensive for the 
Sealex uh, to actually, um, you know, build their own infrastructure. The landlines were there. Uh, they were built by Verizon and Verizon was essentially leasing them to these third party phone companies that were oftentimes fly by nights. But nonetheless, they had to prove to regulatory bodies and governmental bodies such as the BPU that the quality of service that they were providing was comparable to the quality of service that they were providing to their uh, own customers. And so I was involved as an auditor and I was employed by Volt. And uh, Verizon made it very clear, and or I should say rather Volt made it very clear that I was working for them and not for Verizon. Nonetheless, Verizon had me attend as well as the other members of my group uh, monthly training sessions. They actually gave us laptops, uh, Verizon did, to use during the project. They uh, gave us the computer software, the applications to use to uh, process our reports. Uh, we were always working in different um, Excel spreadsheets that were specifically um, designed to, um, you know, to take in vast amounts of data and uh, basically spit out results. Um, so they were um, they there were macros embedded in all of these. Um, uh, Microsoft Excel programs. There were various other programs that uh, we were working on. Um, you know, and the point being here is that even though there was this intermediary uh, vault, um, there was also a very significant, um, you know, employer employee relationship that seemed to crystallize in my mind, at least after I went to law school and I started thinking back to things in hindsight. But it just goes to show you that the big Fortune 500 companies today will establish or will go through a third party intermediary. And the courts have um, have seemingly uh, blessed that um, relationship and have treated that as an employer employee or I'm sorry, employer independent contractor relationship. The fact that there's that buffer in between the uh, the company and the worker, notwithstanding the fact that the company itself may have given the um, worker the tools and the computer applications and the programs they need and the training they need to do the work. Um, so, you know, it's almost like it's a little counterintuitive and it's a little bit upside down, but um, those relationships where there's a third party intermediary seem to cut in the direction of an employer independent contractor relationship and have been blessed that way by the courts. Uh, some of the other factors, does a service consumer invest in maintaining a workspace for the worker? Uh, oh, by the, uh, uh, the, the other thing I meant uh, to say as well is that when I was working for Volt, um, I worked on the premises of a Verizon building. I was working um, in New York um, at the Verizon building, and uh, while my hours were not specifically designated, there were so many hours that I couldn't afford to miss you know, uh, showing up at 7.30 in the morning and, um, you know, and leaving even an hour before 7 p.m. Otherwise, I'd be behind in my work. And so uh, the billable hours were uh, significant and substantial on this project. And we even worked on weekends. So, um, you know, just, uh, you know, just interesting to note. Does the worker have any protection from liability in regards to the realization of profit or loss? from his services separate from the general liability that exists 
as an employee. And so when we talk about this, uh, we're talking about the idea of liability um, in regards to the realization of profit. Um, essentially, the independent contractor has no uh, safeguard, um, you know, and that uh, no guarantee, essentially, so that if the company goes belly up, um, they could be gone tomorrow. They're not guaranteed any um, insurance or any type of uh, prolonged uh, payment, even if the company were to um, go uh, go uh, sayonara the very next day. They're working on basically a daily, a day to day or per diem basis, and nothing is guaranteed. They could they could uh, be severed or cut at any time. And I will tell you that in my personal experience and from the personal example I gave you, um, that was uh, made known to me and made clear to me in um, any one of uh, about a thousand different ways that I could be terminated tomorrow, even though um, the relationship is or the project was expected to last as many as two years. And by the way, it did last that long. Does a worker provide services for a single service consumer at a time rather than piecework for multiple parties? The worker has to have the right to work for other companies besides just that company. Now, does the does the employer or will the employer outright say you cannot work for a competitor of mine? Absolutely not. They don't it's never that um it's never that forward. Instead, what usually happens is that the amount of work is so substantial that there's no way the worker could work for any other company but for this company. Um, I will tell you that in my humble opinion, one of the clearest relationships that exists today uh, for one of worker, independent contractor, and that goes to this uh, one factor is where a uh, is where uh, a teacher is trying to pick up some part-time work by working for a tutoring company. And today, God knows, um, if you have kids, you know that there are any one of like a thousand different uh, tutoring websites um, that, you know, basically, um, you know, where you can select a tutor, um, you know, handpick a tutor, and that tutor can come to your house or tutor your child online. I would say that this, that the relationships that are formed between these online tutoring companies and these um, teachers is very much uh, akin to a worker independent contractor relationship because from experience and from um, you know having uh, spoken to um, tutors that are involved in this type of work, um, there is very very seldomly um, is there a tutor that says they get all of their work from one platform. Um, many of them say that they are on multiple websites, um, you know, and some of them ha have a laundry list of like 20 or 25 and they'll say, you know, yeah, well, there's one that might, you know, get them maybe 50, 60% of the work that they do. Uh, Nary is their one that will get them a hundred percent and keep them busy a hundred percent of the time. Now, of course, I'm sure there's exceptions to that, but, um, you know, having, had some clients in this situation, I would say that um, 
that 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 this tutoring online tutoring is probably the closest uh, that I see that comes to satisfying uh, this element where the uh, worker is allowed to work for various other uh, tutoring uh, online tutoring companies and oftentimes must in order to um, fill their schedule up. Are any services offered by the worker not available to the general public? Does the service consumer have the ability to release or discharge the worker? Um, that is key. Is the worker able to terminate his labor agreement at any time without consequence? Note that most service consumer worker relationships in the U.S. are more appropriately categorized as employee-employer connections. Due to the explicit nature of these questions and the subsequent lack of confusion associated with correct employee classification, misclassification lawsuits are rising and um, progress has been seen. Um, and FedEx, uh, the international shipping carrier, was the subject of one of these cases. And um, the outcome in that case is that 2,300 workers who were previously considered independent contractors were found to be misclassified. So you can only imagine what FedEx had to pay um, in, uh, as a result of this suit. Uh, FedEx argued that the drivers provided their own trucks and didn't have to follow specific routes, but the court determined that by dictating hours, uniforms to be worn, and mandatory company-provided training, FedEx was exerting control inappropriate for contractors. So there we go again. There's that seven-letter word that uh, crops up time and time again. And as you can see here, the court essentially, um, essentially used the element of control as the basis of their holding in finding that FedEx, uh, that the relationship FedEx created was more analogous to that of an employee relationship. Um, and so it's very important to focus in on this element of control. Hey, Michael? Yes. Okay to run another poll question? Sure. All right. This is poll question number four. We are going to have a couple more polls for you. In fact, we're going to have two more polls for you following this one. So we're going to leave this open just a little bit longer while you all get your responses in. There will be two more polls following this one, which is poll question number four. I'll give you a couple more seconds to answer this before we close it down. just under our vote threshold, so we're going to leave this open just a little bit longer. All right, I'm going to go ahead and close this poll down in three, two, and one. Okay, Michael, back to you. Thank you. Now, at the same time, even though the court hung its holding on the element of control, it made clear that absolute control isn't required for employee classification. Um, that's significant here um, because it, um, you know, the literal meaning of control could mean like an overbearing, you know, <laughs> an overbearing relative that, uh, you know, is, is, you know, just absolutely controlling every aspect of their child's uh, life. 
Um, and yet it's not that um, essential, this element of control. It doesn't have to be that significant. Um, just a certain amount above and beyond what would be expected of an independent contractor. So don't get in your mind that control means absolute um, you know, unabridged or um, absolute control. It doesn't have to be that significant. It's um, just a certain amount above and beyond what would be expected of an independent contractor. In some cases, a worker may still be considered an employee by title alone, even if the control test questions demonstrate otherwise. And that leads us to employees by statute. These roles include officers of corporations, as well as superintendents, managers, and other supervisory personnel. Um, you should note that corporate directors are not generally considered employees for their directorial duties. Statutory employees, including drivers engaged in food service distribution, employees who work from home according to an employer's specifications, and full-time traveling or city salesmen. Uh, these groups are automatically uh, going to be classified as employees by statute. FICA taxes must be withheld from statutory employees if, and uh, here are the requirements, the majority of services must be provided by the worker in question. The worker doesn't have a substantial investment in the tools and facilities required to satisfy tasks, and tasks are a part of an ongoing relationship. So um, basically the, uh, the test here is A, is the uh, worker an employee by statute, and B, um, are these elements met? If so, FICA taxes must be withheld from the statutory employees. So uh, the role that you would probably be in um, when asked to figure this out is maybe um, you know a work is maybe the employer coming to your office and asking you point blank um, if he or she must withhold FICA taxes. Um, you know, um, not knowing that the uh, workers are employees by statute. Uh, Section two eighteen agreements or workers of the state or local government covered by Section 218 of the Social Security Act. Uh, so yet that, that is yet another uh, group of individuals that are automatically considered employees by statute. Uh, while statutory employees are considered employees, statutory non-employees are not. Workers who fit in this, into this classification include real estate agents who operate independently, and make most income on commission, direct sellers, and companion caregivers not employed by a parent company. Suspected misclassification. Um, and this is kind of how these uh, lawsuits begin. Uh, they can begin in any one of a number of ways. As I mentioned before, uh, oftentimes it happens where somebody, uh, where a worker gets hurt um, on uh, premises. Um, and uh, they want workers' comp to cover their medical expenses. And then uh, they find out um, through depositions and through discovery uh, that the employer is alleging that uh, they were never an employee in the first place and are not entitled to any type of, um, of workers' comp. Um, however, these things also, these lawsuits also get triggered in other ways. 
Uh, if you're reading this and thinking, well, this isn't good, either in regards to yourself or a client, there are steps that can be taken to right previous wrongs. Um, first, it's suggested that those who believe they are improperly classified to first speak candidly with their employer. Uh, so this might be a counterintuitive, especially today in our litigious society. Um, oftentimes, you know, if the worker isn't injured um, on site, uh, the worker has perhaps been disrespected or has perhaps had an, a dispute with the employer. And, um, you know, this might be one of the ways of uh, retaliating against the um, employer um, going to his or her accountant, um, or um, when I say his or her accountant, I'm referring to the worker's accountant and, you know, laying a claim that they believe that they are um, misclassified. Uh, but what is oftentimes the best place to start, unless it's a very, um, unless a relationship has turned um, extremely antagonistic between the worker and the employer, um, and, uh, you know, and there's no way that they can talk things out. Um, if that's not the case, then it's uh, always a good idea to first speak for the worker to first speak candidly with their employer. In some cases, employers don't mean to misclassify workers, um, and they're not malicious about their practices and truly don't realize the issues at hand. Uh, while this might seem um, you know, to be a little bit, uh, um, a little bit, uh, disingenuous, uh, believe it or not, uh, this is sometimes the case. Um, keep in mind that not all employers, you know, are knowledgeable about this. And even though they might have, um, you know, a high level of knowledge when it comes to managing and operating their business, this area of worker classification falls squarely at our feet as accountants and as um, tax professionals. And so we can't automatically infer the knowledge that we have on this to an employer, no matter uh, how sophisticated that employer might be in this, in, in the area of management and finance. So, um, you know, sometimes it's good to give the work or the employer the benefit of the doubt, um, even if they come out of the gate, um, you know, um, a very worked up and agitated about this whole thing. Um, in some cases, they truly don't realize the issues at hand. And once they uh, are brought up to speed on it, um, sometimes, you know, are willing to rectify the situation right away. Other times, you know, uh, they're obstinate and, um, you know, even if they were in the shadows before, have no um, uh, intention of correcting their past misdeeds. However, this step should be taken on a case-by-case -case basis and workers concerned about job security may not be ready to come forward. The next step is to get the government involved uh, by filing Form SS-8, Determination of Worker Status for Purposes of Federal Employment Taxes and Income Tax Withholding. Workers can request a determination by the IRS. Uh, so if you Google Form SS-8 or if you want to jump onto the IRS website, um, you can um, download the form. It is a lengthy form. Um, there, uh, there's actually, um, a blog I think that I've written that actually, um, tries to make sense of the form because it can be, 
uh, literally like that Triwizard Maze in Harry Potter. Um, I kid you not, um, it's a very complicated form. And considering the fact that um, it's often filed by uh, a worker who has absolutely no knowledge whatsoever of this area, it's very easy to make mistakes. Um, so if the uh, worker comes to you, you want to be familiar with the form so that you can help um, shepherd them through this without, you know, mistakes and without needless delays. This form outlines many of the same principles listed above and even takes things a step further, categorizing forms of support into three distinct buckets, uh, behavioral control, financial control, and uh, third, the relationship between the service consumer and worker. Uh, behavioral control is the presence of rules regarding scheduling, training, tools, equipment, and worker performance. Financial control is dealing with issues concerning who pays workers' expenses, like workspaces and equipment, and how workers are paid. Um, and third, the relationship between the service consumer and the worker. Uh, this deals with the presence of advantages like benefits or restrictions like a non-compete or a non-disclosure agreement. Michael? Yes. Okay to run another poll question? Sure, Jason. Okay, this is poll question number five. This will be the second to last poll question that we will run. There will be one more poll question following this one throughout our remaining time. In the meantime, poll question number five is available for everybody to answer. We're going to leave this open for just a little bit longer. We've had our poll open for a little less than a minute. Want to make sure that everybody has their opportunity to get your poll answers in. Again, this is poll question number five. There will be one more poll question after this one. We're going to close this poll down in five, four, three, two, one. Michael, back to you. Thank you, Jason. <clears throat> so when the IRS receives form SS8, uh, it'll send the same form to the service consumer to be completed. The case is uh, assigned a technician who reviews both forms, that of the worker and that of the employer, and uh, makes a determination uh, based on the law. If a formal determination is issued by the IRS, it is considered binding for all future cases with the same set of facts. Uh, so it has precedent um, in terms of governing disputes that are similar in nature. And this is the type of determination that um, the IRS would look to if a, a later dispute matched or had facts similar to the one that it ruled on here. Um, if an information letter is sent, on the other hand, it's not binding, but rather can be interpreted as advisory. So it's kind of like um, what we have in the law. Uh, there are published opinions. There are unpublished opinions. Published opinions generally have uh, what we call stare decisis, and um, they have you know, they basically govern what the courts have to do if they have facts 
that come before them, similar to the case that they decided that um, you know that uh, established that precedent. And so, um, even though the IRS is not a court, if they make a formal determination and a later case comes before them with facts similar to the case in which they made that formal determination, the case in which they made the formal determination will be the, essentially the, um, the law that they follow when making their decision on the subsequent case, so long as the facts in the subsequent case are similar to those that they decided in the original case. If the information letter is sent out, it's less formal, it's not binding, uh, there's no binding precedent. It's rather, it can be interpreted as advisory. So if you're in a position where you find an advisory, um, you know, opinion, you can still use it to argue um, your client's uh, point of view, uh, but it's not going to have the same um, binding precedent that a formal determination would have. And again, we're dealing with the IRS here. We're not at the court level yet. We're dealing with the IRS. Note that the statute of limitations for a refund continues to run during this time, regardless of the preparation of Form SS-8. So, um, if a taxpayer is concerned about this, he is encouraged to file uh, Form 1040X, an amended return, as soon as possible with the words protective claim at the top and under Part 3, explanation of changes, filed Form SS-8 with the IRS in Holtzville, New York. By filing this protective claim, I reserve the right to file a claim for any refund that may be due after a determination of my employment tax status has been completed. Because keep in mind what we just talked about in the last slide, the statute of a limitation for a refund continues to run, meaning that even though the tax, even though the um, individual has filed the SS-8, that does not in any way um, stop the statute or toll the statute of limitations on the refund claim from running. And in order for the taxpayer to preserve the potential refund claim, um, you know, pending um, prevail, prevailing on this SS-8, they need uh, their tax preparer to um, include on the amended 1040 this language. Otherwise, um, if this language about the protective claim is not um, listed on the top of the amended 1040 um, and the taxpayer later prevails um, on that SS-8 issue with a final determination or an advisory uh, decision, what have you, he or she may be barred from uh, the refund claim by virtue of the fact that the statute of limitations has run. <clears throat> So how should a worker handle an IRS determination of worker classification? While it's possible to give the IRS a heads up via Form SS-8, it's far more likely for the IRS to note misclassification through a standard business audit. One of the biggest red flags the IRS looks for and something that can actually trigger an audit is a substantial number of 1099s with large numbers in Box 7, uh, non-employee compensation. Uh, that is a huge red flag. For those found to be mis misclassified who have not yet filed taxes, the amount reported on Form 1099 should be included on line 7 of Form 1040. 
FICA tax must then be calculated manually using Form 8919, which is an uncollected Social Security and Medicare tax on wages. In addition, the taxpayer should include Form 4852, the substitute for Form W-2 wage and tax statement to stand in for the W-2 that should have been provided. So you can see here, you know, there's going to be a lot of additional preparation work um, that has to be done here. And it's almost like, um, you know, it's illusory at this stage because it's only a worker who believes that they've been misclassified. Um, and yet there hasn't been a definitive decision uh, made yet. And it could happen in the form of a concession. Um, right now, I'm basically talking about the situation where, you know, um, the taxpayer or the worker files the SS-8, but you could have an employer, I realize that this is probably the rare circumstance, but you could have an employer who maybe concedes that, yes, this worker is an employee. Uh, but again, that's going to be the rare exception. Um, if anything, this is mainly going to devolve into, um, you know, a lot of um, dispute um, and, um, and and then perhaps even make its way to um, a court or to um, an IRS appeals officer. Hey, Michael. Yes, Jason. Just want to jump in. We've only got a few minutes left. I want to make sure we have time for the last polling question. Sure. All right, I'm going to go ahead and launch that now. This is the sixth and final polling question. We only have a couple minutes left, so I wanted to make sure we had this last poll in. Not sure if we're going to have time for many questions, as I know you still have a couple more things to finish out, but we are going to start wrapping up within the next couple of minutes for the end of our time. In the meantime, poll question number six, the sixth and final poll, is currently live. So after this poll concludes, I will turn it back over to you, Michael, and then let's get ready to wrap up sometime within the next uh, three to four minutes. Sounds good. Thank you, Jason. All right. I'm going to leave this open just a little bit longer. All right, we're going to close this sixth and final poll down in five, four, three, two, one. Michael, back to you. All right. Uh, so we talked about Form 8919, and uh, we also talked about 4852, the substitute for Form W-2. Um, so a lot of uh, preparation work that has to be done for perhaps something that is uh, only illusory right now, especially if the uh, employer hasn't made a concession that the worker is, in fact, an employee. Nonetheless, uh, this would be how the worker should handle um, the determination of worker classification in terms of going forward. Um, if taxes were already filed, the amended uh, 1040 will be required to amend the original filing and request a refund of any self-employment tax paid if a and that's where we get to the refund claim by the way if you were wondering I apologize for having left that out but um, that is basically the purpose or the thrust behind the refund claim the fact that there was self-employment tax paid by the um, by the worker if a w-2 is eventually offered an additional amendment may be suggested 
Um, as FICA taxes are jointly paid, employers who are working to change poor practices should request employees fill out Form 4669, which is the statement of payments received to account for the portion a worker paid on his own behalf. In uh, some rare and unfortunate circumstances, a change in classification may result in a deficiency if a worker was taking deductions on Schedules A or C. So this is the reverse effect where the change in classification from independent contractor to employee actually results in a um, deficiency whereby the worker um, is going to owe the IRS more money because they had been taking previously been taking deductions on Schedules A or C that aren't permitted for a W-2 employee to claim. So this leads to another very important point. You want to make sure that your client who comes to you and who is insisting that, they sh that they've been misclassified knows that, um, for example, if they fit within these within this circumstance where they were taking a large number of deductions on Schedules A or C as an independent contractor, that they are probably going to uh, have a deficiency and are going to owe uh, the IRS some money on um, you know, a subsequent amended return if their status changes from where they are right now to that of a W-2 employee. So it's a double-edged sword, and you want to make the client know, you know both edges of the sword so that they can make a well-informed decision. Uh, there's no relief for workers in misclassification cases, so these changes will require an amended return and further payment. So you were illegally misclassified and you're mad about it, and we're going to end on this note. I just have one or two slides. Is that okay, Jason? That is okay. We only have about a minute and a half, though. All right. So now what? In some cases, a lawsuit may be the appropriate response. If we go under 7434, there may be recourse for the victims of those who knowingly file a fraudulent information return. Damages uh, can range from five grand to the true value of the damage that resulted from the changes in filing status, as well as the cost of bringing legal action, including reasonable legal fees. What this really um, goes to is that um, if the um, by fraudulent information return, what we're referring to here is the employer who has filed a fraudulent information return. So the employer can't be a um, you know uh, somebody who uh, did this unknowingly and who essentially was oblivious to worker classification. He has to know that his workers uh, should have been treated as employees, and notwithstanding that, uh, fraudulently, fraudulently misrepresented it to the IRS that they were um, independent contractors. And so this is a heightened element, and it's oftentimes difficult to prove um, any type of malicious or fraudulent motive. Nonetheless, if the worker can do that, the damages uh, can range from $5,000 to the true value of the damage that resulted from the changes in filing status, and the worker can actually have the cost of the legal action paid for by the employer. So that's the benefit of trying to make a case that um, the uh, preparation or that the filing of these returns was done so fraudulently by the employer. Um, and to win this kind of case, 
Uh, you have to be able to prove an information return was issued. It was fraudulent. The return was issued willingly and knowingly. And I will tell you that those two elements, willingly and knowingly, are very high mental elements, even in this civil setting. Uh, forget about the setting of that in a criminal trial, but willingly and knowingly are heightened elements. And um, because you can't open up a person's head and see what they're thinking, you have to conjure up um, or cite to what are called badges of fraud that would show circumstantially um, that the employer willingly, knowingly, uh, defraud, uh, fraudulently filed the information return. Uh, good All faith. Right, and I think, okay. <laughs> We'll stop here. Yeah, right. Of course, I wanted to jump in and just I'm sorry to say, but we are out of time for the allotted uh, time we've left for this section. So I'll wrap up quickly. Michael, thank you so much for presenting today. I wish we had a little bit more uh, time to get to the last couple of slides, but I do want to thank you uh, greatly for your time, your attention and your expertise today. So thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you, Jason. And thanks to everybody on the line as well. <clears throat> We're gonna process credit later today. Thank you all for attending. We hope you all have a great rest of the day. We hope to see you all on future webinars.